Hello and welcome to the Power in the Key podcast. I'm your host, Neil Winterson, and joining me on the line as he does every week, it's Ben Cad. How are you, Caddy? Going well, Winno. Just come straight from an all-star weekend and, um, yeah, fresh and ready to, to dissect uh, all the events. It wasn't quite a weekend, but, yeah, all the events from, um, from today's activities. Beautiful. Now, as you said, uh, the All-Star game just wrapped up, so we're going to jump straight into a bit of bit of talk about the All-Star, as you said, not weekend, but festivities. So we'll start with, with yeah, the festivities that happened before the game. So we started with the skilled challenge. We saw Robert Covington, Luka Doncic, Chris Paul, Julius Randle, DeMontis Sabonis and Nikola Vucevic were the six contestants uh, in the skills challenge. So split into three guards in Covington, Doncic and Paul. Not that Covington's much of a guard, but I think... They were sort of angling him uh, in as a guard. And then the three bigs in Randall, Sabonis and Vucevic. saw Doncic and Chris Paul actually got a free pass into the second round because of the the only being the uh, the six entrances. And, and Paul and Doncic were obviously the heavy favourites. But we saw uh, the two big guys in Sabonis and Vucevic make it through to the final. And in the end, Sabonis coming away with the win, which is obviously a little bit of a shock. Uh, what did you think of that, Caddy? Yeah, look, he was the one that straight out of the blocks um, had everything rolling, Sabonis. He, uh, I think it really wasn't until the final where he'd, he'd missed a shot. He still didn't, I think he got his pass into the hoop the first time around on all three occasions. So, I mean, that's that's such an advantage to get that over and done with and get the layup all sorted. And then, yeah, up until the final, he'd hit his first shot for three on both occasions and game over before the other bloke had even got down, down the court. So, yeah, probably a surprise in terms of, you know, the, the bigs doing it so easy, you know, that we have seen a shift, particularly the last five or six years, where the big guys have done well, you know, Adebayo winning last year, and we've had Pazingas and Carl Anthony Towns win it in previous years as well. So I think it's just an extension of what we're seeing in the in the game itself, where, you know, the bigs are so much more able to handle the, the ball and their playmaking and passing has, you know, become so much better. And, you know, they're all stretching the floor out now to outside the three. So, you know, it is a reflection of the NBA in total that we are seeing these big guys, you know, winning these type of skills-based events. And you look at it on paper and would have thought Doncic and um, Chris Paul in particular were probably the two guys to beat. But, yeah, Sabonis really didn't put a foot wrong all the way through and, and came away with a with a pretty resounding victory. Do you enjoy the skills challenge? We, we have seen over the last few years that, Generally, you. I mean, this year obviously the All Stars are competing in it because they're there, and, and and the other players wouldn't have been. But generally, the the really talented players do actually go in the Skills Challenge as a as opposed to some of the other events. I don't particularly enjoy the event. I think the guys sort of coast through it a lot. What, what do you think about the event? No, look, of all the activities over the All Star weekend, it's probably the event I probably don't tune into it with any great detail. As you said, it's probably come away from what it was um, set up to be initially. And, you know, we go back to the very first one back in 2003 and it was Jason Kidd that won it. And that's probably where you look and go, well, this is the type of uh, player this event is, is really built for. And, you know, Steve Nash has won it, Dwayne Wade and Darren Williams and these type of guys. But it has sort of changed from that. Yeah, as you said, they kind of just go through the motions a little bit. And then in the end, it really just comes down to the ability to hit the three shot anyway, getting around the, the dribbling um, apparatus is an entire... Apart from Chris uh, Paul, who couldn't make a layup. Yeah, well, that's right. And that, that was quite interesting on the commentary, even though we were talking about the fact that he, he was sort of coming on on his opposite hand and um, the fact that that was a disadvantage. But I think it was Shaq that pretty much in the end, if the guys are earning $40 million, they should be able to make a layup <laughs> either side of their body. But um, yeah, look, of all the activities, it's one that um, I think is pretty Mickey Mouse. And the fact that, yeah, it's a skill-based challenge that inevitably you need to be able to hit a three to win it. Yeah, I don't think it, it, it's got any great legs as a as a tune-in must-see event. 
No, I don't think I, I couldn't name who who's won last year's skill challenge, and I, I know Wade's won two of them, but apart from him, I couldn't tell you who else has won in any of the other ones. But the highlight of the night, and I think it is every year for me, was the three point contest. So this year we had Zach Levine, Jalen Brown, Steph Curry, Donovan Mitchell. Jason Tatum and Mike Conley, who uh, not only replaced Devin Booker in, in the main game, but also in the three-point contest as well. And we saw Tatum, Curry and Conley make it through to, to the final. Uh, Tatum choked a little bit in, in the final there, only coming up with 17 points. Mike Conley shot really well in, in both rounds. He, he got 27. And then Steph Curry, and, and this is, for me, this is why this, this event is so good, because it is you do actually see a bit of a contest. So Steph come out and shot last. He had to get 20, 28 to win it. Got down to his last ball. He was on 26. He had the money ball. And, of course, he knocked it down to win by one. And I think, for me, that, that's why uh, this is the highlight of the uh, of the All-Star uh, weekend festivities because you do get a bit of a challenge. The guys do try in this event uh, as opposed to the skills challenge. You see him cruising around a little bit. And, and it's just beautiful to watch. Like Steph Curry's first round where he, he scored 31 was just incredible to watch. And yeah, it's, just, it's just a joy to see some of these guys, the way they can shoot. Uh, what what did you take out of this? Did, were you were you impressed? Firstly, Mike Conley was probably a little bit of a surprise to to make it through to the final, given he was just a late inclusion. Was there someone who disappointed for you out of the shooters? I wouldn't say so much disappointed. I mean, I think when we looked at the lineup, that and again, just to the way the All Star Weekend was um, delivered this year, where you know it wasn't really the pure shooters that were coming in and, and competing in this event. It was more more just general scoring players and when you think of you know Tatum and Brown and even Zach Levine you're not sort of identifying and Donovan Mitchell to a point you know three points just basically a field of all-stars wasn't it pretty much and that's where you know went right into Curry's you know into hands and and it was just it was a treat to really see him perform and we're so lucky that he was able to to be a part of the event because it really added an extra element to it well Connolly was the one that yeah I think surprised everyone and he's got sort of a bit of a jerky sort of left left-hand action there and, you know, it doesn't look like he's a pure shooter. But, you know, his shooting numbers this year are, are pretty good from outside uh, the arc. So he's shooting 42% you know, and participating in this competition for the first time. So he, he didn't let himself down at all. He, he really took it up to Curry um, and, and made Curry work for it um, in that in that final round. And I looked at one point that he wasn't going to get there. I think he only yeah, shot He one. actually missed his first four shots. So to yeah, after got, missing your first four is incredible. Yeah, he only got his money ball in. But, you know, the big advantage for Curry, not only – you know, just from a general three-point shooting, but those two Mountain Dew additional point shots that they have, you know, yeah. that are a bit further out, work right into his favour. And I think he nailed both of those in the final. So yeah, that, um, that's that's the, that's the added wrinkle that, as you said, there plays right into Steph's hands. Of the four shots he took there over the two rounds, he was three out of four, and Conley only hit one of his four in the two rounds. And you could see he was leaving him short on that shot. So I think he was struggling with the extra distance, which sounds a bit unusual for an NBA player. But there's no doubt he was he was not not comfortable shooting for that range where Steph certainly is. Yeah, absolutely. And Curry, you know, in the end was the clearly the man to beat. And I was talking through the through the commentary about the fact that Larry Bird one year went went into the room and pretty much said, which one of you guys is going to be um, coming second? You know, he just had that swagger and confidence. And, and shot you know, in his uh, warm-up uh, jacket as well. Yeah, and I think Curry, you know, he pretty much looked pretty similar in terms of just had his shirt untucked and looked pretty laconic um, going into it, just knowing pretty much had to turn up and, and do what he does and he, he was going to win it. But look, you know, as we as we've mentioned, Conley gave him something to chase down and he was good enough to get there. And I agree, I think the three-point contest um, historically for me also has been the highlight of the events. And it's a bit different to even the dunk contest where, you know, the scoring can, you know, throw out results. And we've seen that um, in the past, but this is generally just going on how many buckets you hit and um, the best shooter generally wins. So this year, no surprises, it was Steph Curry. 
what is a bit of a surprise is Steph's record previously in this competition. He was only one and six in the comp coming in into tonight's go at it. So it would be interesting if he had a loss today and ended up sort of one and seven. Obviously, Steph's sort of renowned as the best shooter of all time. So it would have been a little bit of an unusual stat if he'd lost tonight and come away with a, with a one and seven record. Uh, we saw the slam dunk competition this year only down to three participants, and it was done at halftime in a bit of a shortened format, which I thought was really good. It sort of made made it flow a little bit better. The three guys in it, not not household names, were Anthony Simons from Portland, Obi Toppin, the rookie from New York, and Cassius Stanley from Indiana, who I must admit I've never shoot I've never seen shoot a basketball, but uh, he was the fa- actually the favourite going into this event because he he actually broke Zion Williamson's vertical leap record while he was at Duke, so he can certainly get up there, and I thought he was a little bit unlucky, if I'm being honest. That first dunk was, he made it look so easy, but it, that wasn't an easy dunk, and he only got a score, I think, of 44 from memory, and that sort of put him on the on the back foot, and I think he's inexperienced there. His second dunk, he just ended up throwing down just a pretty run-of-the-mill dunk there. We did see Anthony Simons come away as the winner. In As I said, it was a bit different this year. They had two dunks, uh, the two top-scored uh, guys out of that went through to the final, just with one dunk each. And then instead of giving scores after the two guys did dunk, the the judges just just nominated who they thought uh, the best dunker was. Were you happy with the result out of that one? Oh, look, I think in the end, as you mentioned, uh, Stanley was probably unlucky um, initially. And the score he got on that first dunk, you thought, okay, well, it didn't really matter what the score was, you know, in the event that the rest of the dunks were going to be scored accordingly. But I think straight away, once um, Toppin threw down his first dunk, it was like, hang on a sec, but, you know, I'm not sure how that. That dunk has been scored so much higher than Stanley's dunk. So I think he was unlucky. And then, you know, as you said, once he got to uh, dunk number two, it, it, it fell away for him. But, yeah, the talk going in, and I think the odds makers had him uh, the clear favourite just based on his athleticism and, and his ability to, you know, to get up so high. And I think even from a young age and some of his high school dunk contests, he'd been able to throw him down really well. But in the end, I think uh, Simon's probably... Deserved the win. I, I like the kiss dunk. And it, look, it probably would have been great if he had actually kissed the rim. But, you know, he, he not was really COVID safe, though, is it? Probably not COVID safe, but also um, going at such a high velocity and to get up so high and fast, um, you wouldn't want him to knock out a couple of his front teeth either trying to, wouldn't be trying ideal. to do it. But, but it was creative. And um, I think. When he initially did the dunk just live, you, you hadn't really got the appreciation. Yeah, the I thought, I just thought, what was that? That was, that was pretty run of the mill stuff. Yeah, so it wasn't until he um, sort of blew the kiss once he'd landed and it was like, oh, hang on a sec, he hasn't gone and kissed the ring, has he? And then obviously, you know, the slow-mo footage was, was awesome and it, it, I thought it was probably the win, winning dunk, albeit I loved the um, Obi Toppin one bringing out his, his old man to jump over along with Julius Randall. Then they had a, um, a for me a, that For me, that was a dunk of the night, especially in slow motion when you saw that. I mean, he obviously pushed off the back of Julius Randall a, a fraction, but he, he, he had some serious air and he brought the ball back and, and th- I thought that was the dunk of the night. Well, yeah, he was able to really wind it up, bit of almost a windmill, and have the ball sort of tucked in, in into his wrist. And yeah, but just the footage of his uh, his old man as well was a, a pretty good dunk, and he, he barely looked like he was ten years older than him. So it was hard to see him how he was his father. He still looked in pretty good shape. But yeah, that that was a really terrific dunk as well. But I agree, I like the format, having it a bit more short and succinct and um, less dunks. And you know, it would have been greater to have a bit more star power in the contest. And so I'm not sure whether the NBA. Going to next year can really twist the arms of guys like Jay Morant or Zion Williamson or a few of the um, really young stars in the league to to get involved with it, had a bit more star power. 
you would have hoped, given that you know Morant, oh, sorry, uh, Williamson, and even Zach Levine were obviously both there to participate in the game. It would have been really good if those two had a put their hand up and gone in it. I mean, they, you only have to throw down a couple of dunks. You know, I know there is obviously a risk of getting injured. I, I do understand that, but you know, guys like Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins, you know, in the years gone by, went in it every year, and there was no issues there. So it is a little bit disappointing that the the big names uh, aren't embracing the slam dunk competition. I, I think they're almost worried that they might not win, and I think that's probably why LeBron hasn't gone in it in the past. He's got obviously a huge reputation and and sells a heap of sneakers and stuff. And if he doesn't win it, you know, does his brand get damaged? I doubt that it would, but I think that's. I think that's one thing that these guys are worried about a little, a little bit too much. Their brand and their reputation. If they don't win it, do, do you think that maybe that's one of the reasons they don't go in it? No, I think it's the main reason. I don't even think injuries are consideration for it so much. It's more there's so much margin for error with the dunking, even compared to the three point shooting. I mean, these guys are so good at shooting. You know, they're, they're generally going to back themselves in to compete pretty well. The dunk contest is yeah fraught with danger, really, in terms of embarrassing yourself and not being able to execute on the night. So I think that yeah, that's the the biggest drawback. And I think, you know, we've seen guys like Levine and, you know, Aaron Gordon have gone in multiple times and he's won, you know, the, the Gordon situation where he's dunked so, had so many good dunks and never been able to actually win the contest. He's probably just thrown his hands up as well and gone, well, that's the last time you've seen him come out and, um, you know, yeah, I don't think we're going to be seeing Aaron Gordon anytime soon. The, obviously the most unluckiest dunker in the history of the, of the dunk comp. So we'll move on to the main event now, the the All-Star game. Um, we had LeBron and Durant as the team captains, and obviously Durant was unable to participate given his injury. So LeBron, LeBron starting five was absolutely incredible. He had, obviously had himself, he had Giannis, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, and Nikola Jokic. And Durant starting five was Kyrie Irving, Joel Embiid, uh, Kawhi Leonard, Bradley Beal, and Jason Tatum. Just on the starting five there, you could almost argue that LeBron starting five could be the first team All NBA. Like obviously, you know, Joel Embiid's probably just got his nose in front of Jokic, and you know maybe Lillard might sneak in there over Doncic. But that that's an incredible uh, starting five there for, for LeBron. So it was always going to be pretty difficult for for Team Durant to to come away with a win. And LeBron's bench was Lillard, uh, Ben Simmons, who didn't end up playing um, himself, and Joel Embiid uh, had to be a late withdrawal because they'd come into contact with a barber the previous day who had tested positive to COVID. So I think they, they avoided a bit of a, a disaster there, the NBA. I think they'd obviously copped a lot of negativity about even staging this game and why are we doing it and bringing a lot of people into the into the one place. And not, for me, my biggest concern was going to be if, if one of the guys tested positive and they're around 24 of the best players in the NBA and when the league restarts, the best 24 players aren't playing. So I think they sidestepped a bit of a lamb. Could you imagine, Caddy, if, if that had been the case and and Simon, uh, Ben Simmons sorry, and, and uh, Joel Embiid had played or be, been in contact with a lot of these other guys and all these other guys had to sit out uh, when the season restarted? Could you imagine the, the, the kick-up that would have happened over that? Well, it's just a huge risk, really. You know, we spoke about it when we did the initial All-Star rosters a few weeks back and the fact that, you know, we didn't even know if the game was going to go ahead. But there's obviously so much on the line from a financial point of view, obviously, the NBA to run the event. Uh, the risk versus reward, you know, those meetings that would have been taking place in terms of logistically getting everyone there and, and you know, getting them all out of there safely would have been, you know, really worrying for everyone involved. And, you know, when the news filtered through that uh, Simmons and Embiid were going to be out and yet, you know, the mind starts racing. But uh, it looks like, now they're able to handle it pretty swiftly, and the the contact obviously uh, wasn't as such that they'd already been mingling with everyone, and were able to um, get on planes and fly pretty much straight out of there again. But to, you know, look, I don't know that it took too much gloss off the game itself. 
you know, Embiid, as good as he is and dominant, you know, he's probably not really built for these type, type of matches and the, the fact that Simmons, you know, really does struggle to shoot the ball. Um, his passing is obviously awesome, but, you know, I don't think we really missed out the fact that those two guys weren't necessarily playing. No, I don't think so either. But just rounding out the rest of his bench, so uh, LeBron's bench, so he had Lillard, Simmons, who didn't play, Chris Paul, Jalen Brown, Paul George, DeMontis Sabonis, and Rudy Gobert, and the bench for Durant was James Harden, Devin Booker, who was replaced by Mike Conley, Zion Williamson, Zach Levine, Julius Randle, Nikola Vucevic, and Donovan Mitchell. Interestingly, when the two squads were chosen, the two Utah boys were left to, to the two last picks, which I know raised a few eyebrows. What did you think about that? Yeah, look, I don't know. I think, you know, they were joking around with it, and LeBron was sort of making jokes about, you know, if you ever pick Utah, uh, pick Utah when you're playing the Jam or uh, any of the NBA games and things like that. But it, look, I don't know what's in it, but it, it did seem a, a, an interesting sort of selection. Look, I, looking at the rosters up and down, I wouldn't have thought um, Gobert and um, Mitchell were going to be the last two blokes chosen. So whether there's anything... Gobert potentially, uh, but certainly not Donovan Mitchell, who's a highlight reel and can shoot the three. Gobert's obviously a bit more of a defensive force. But I agree, I, I wouldn't have either of them last or second last. You could understand Gobert, but certainly not Mitchell. Yeah, so you're just going to wonder if there was anything else underlying uh, to that. I know um, Joe there obviously took a lot of sh- a lot of shade last year with the, you know, being the first guy really with COVID and sort of the shutting the league down almost, and you know the footage of him at the press conference. But Mitchell in particular, you know, he's an elite scorer, and you know the, the game itself would be set up um, for a player like him. But yeah, it was, it was interesting. But yeah, look, Mitchell in particular seemed to have taken it really well. He, he still participated in three point comp- uh, competition as well as the match, but. And played pretty well, I thought, um, Donovan Mitchell when he got it when he got his opportunity. Yeah, he certainly did. And it was thought before the game that LeBron's team was going to be really difficult to beat, given how well that he selected, especially that starting five. And and that's the way it proved to be. So they they do the each quarter that the score gets reset to zero, and it's about winning each quarter. And LeBron's team won each quarter, apart from the last quarter, but that didn't really matter. So they won the first quarter, forty to thirty nine. The second quarter is where they blew the doors off Team Durant, sixty to forty one. Uh, the third quarter, they won again by 1.46 to 45. And then the Elam ending where the 24 points is added to the to the score of the highest team and both teams have to chase that down. So Team Durant were that far behind. They were never really going to be able to mount, mount any sort of chance. And they did actually win the last quarter, 25 to 24, but the final score was 170 to 150. As usual, the, the All-Star game is extremely high scoring. We saw Giannis come away with the MVP. in Just in 19 minutes, he scored 35 points on 16 from 16 from the field. Now, obviously, I think 13 of them were dunks or, or, or close enough to the rim. He did hit three threes, two of them off the window, which I'm not quite sure he called bank on either of them, but he certainly got a bit lucky. He had the seven rebounds and the three assists. Steph Curry was fantastic too, especially in that first half. He hit six threes, um, a couple of long bombs, one from just inside the, the centre uh, court there, and Damian Lillard as well. He finished the game with a three to ice it from half court. I think he hit three half court shots from memory. He had 32 points in 21 minutes. Interestingly, LeBron James didn't play a minute in that second half at all. So he was obviously just resting himself up for the uh, for the second half of the season. Uh, Team Durant were led by Kyrie Irving, who I thought was, was really good with 24 points and 12 assists. Bradley Beal had the 26 points. James Harden off the bench had 21 and Jason Tatum also had the 21 points. So was it a surprise for you that Giannis got the MVP in the end? I mean, obviously 16 from 16 was really good. Did you think either Curry or Lillard were getting close to him? Uh, I think the in the end, the 16 from 16, 35 points was too, a bridge too far, even though you know, Curry and, 
Lillard really put on the show for the night. It was actually incredible watching them go at it. And the fact they're on the same team made it even more incredible. But um, I think if Giannis hadn't had those three three-pointers and it was all just dumps, perhaps, you know, maybe not. But the fact he'd actually got out there and shot three from three as well, um, he was going to go, uh, going to be hard to go past. But the really interesting and funny thing out of all this, you know, you look at LeBron and I'm sure he's got aspirations down the track to either be an owner or a GM. And since uh, the All-Star game's reverted to, you know, the two um, captains selecting the sides, uh, LeBron's team's gone four and none. So he's, he's got a Not great a bad record. GM. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> Well, he's sort of been. He, well, he ran the Cleveland Cavaliers, I think, pretty much on his own for about five years. Pretty much, yeah. In terms of signing players and, and letting guys go, and even when he was in Miami, I think he had a, a fair bit to do with some of their draft choices as well. So, yeah, that is the path he wants to I take. I think Shabazz Napier turned out that well, though. To uh, to be fair, no, not quite. But you know, look now, four four from four from the All Star drafting, you know, he can really hang his hat on that and put it on his resume when he's potentially looking for jobs down the track. Do you enjoy the All Star Game? I know you know historically, especially the last. If you take out last year's game, the, probably the previous six or seven games has just sort of turned into a bit of a dunk fest, and and guys sort of playing no defense at all. Last All Star Game, last year's All Star Game was fantastic. That the especially that last quarter with the defense ratcheted right up. I thought today's last quarter, um, certainly the defense did pick up. But Team Durant were just too far behind. Do you enjoy watching it at all, or do you just think it's a bit of a Mickey Mouse thing? I think it's a Mickey Mouse thing for sure. I haven't really enjoyed it over the years. I, I mean, I think it has improved with the way they try to orchestrate the endings and, and you know, for the fact that the players have to kind of step up and play some defence. And albeit today's um, scoreline was lopsided just due to the blowout in the second quarter, it was actually one of the more enjoyable games for me uh, to watch. There was, um, you know, obviously Curry and Lillard and their incredible uh, shot making. You had Chris Paul dishing out 12 assists in the first half. He ended up with 16 of them. There was it, was a, interesting, a nice... it was interesting with Chris Paul there. A couple of times he, he stole off James Harden, and you could see it was it was early on in the game too where not a lot of defense was being played. But I reckon he was sending a bit of a statement to James Harden with a couple of steals that he poked away from behind. And one of those, after one of them, I think um, I'd have to re-look at the footage, but it looked like Harden sort of really did give him a bit of a push and a nudge after it. I don't think he was entirely happy. I think he enjoyed it that much. <laughs> that had happened, but... You know, but even then, uh, we saw Chris Porgan on the end of an alley-oop. We saw uh, Steph Curry on the end of it, an alley-oop as well. Uh, we had the, the nice footage of Curry versus, uh, sorry, um, Chris Paul versus Conley at the start of the second quarter and the tip-off. Yeah, so I think they, there were some entertaining passages throughout this match and it was probably, as I said, one of the one of the better All-Star games that I uh, I can remember. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, I, I, I watch it every year because you sort of have to watch it. But, yeah, it does sort of – it is a little bit Mickey Mouse, but certainly last year's one. And I agree, even though the score was a bit lopsided today, I thought today's All-Star game was really enjoyable. Now, the big news uh, during the week that we that we had, it happened the day after we recorded last week, was the Atlanta Hawks firing Lord, Lloyd Pierce, their, their head coach. He had a 65 and 120 uh, win-loss uh, record while he was coach of the Atlanta Hawks for two and a half seasons, which is only a 35% win rate. Uh, he was only 16 and 20 this year. Now, there was obviously a lot of pressure coming into the season for the Atlanta Hawks to take a big jump up, given the guys that that, that they had recruited. But I think he, I think he's been a little bit hard done by here because you, you could argue that a lot of these guys that they did bring in, uh, Danilo Gallinari's only played the 24 games, only shooting 39% from the field. Ray John Rondo's only played the 20 games. Now, he's, he, he's numbers, 3.6 points a game, 2.2 rebounds and 3.5 assists, shooting 39% from the field. Now, that's obviously horrendous. And anyone who's watched Rondo over the last few years know that he does sleepwalk through the season and only brings his best in playoff situations. So it was a bit of a strange 
uh, signing, I thought, when it initially happened. And Bogdanovich has only played the nine games. Now, he's only averaging 9.4 points and 2.2 assists, shooting 38% from the field. So the pressure sort of ratcheted up this year on the Atlanta Hawks. Sort of Lloyd Pierce put that on them on himself a little bit by saying that, you know, they needed to make the playoffs this year. But they're essentially the same team as last year, adding Clint Capella, who didn't play last year. Do you think he's a little bit hard done by given the injuries they ha- they have had this year, Caddy, or do you think it was fair enough that they needed to move on? No, look, I think it was early um, to move him on. And, I mean, you look at the standings and you talk about the fact that, all right, they put it on themselves to make the playoffs and they started off the season reasonably well. And we, we discussed a few weeks back that, you know, we, we found it hard to see them dropping out of perhaps even the sixth seed at that stage. So they are only one game out of the eighth seed. They're only two games out of the sixth seed and only three games out of the fourth seed. So it's not like it's absolute curtains for the Atlanta Hawks from even this season's point of view. So from from that, I, I did, did find the timing of the announcement surprising. Given all yeah. that, do you think that it was probably leading into the season, Travis Link, their GM, was probably leaning towards uh, firing Lloyd Pierce but thought, look, he's only had the two seasons. We've been re- rebuilding for two seasons. I'll give him the first sort of half of the season to see how it went. And he was sort of looking for any excuse to get rid of him and found one here. Look, perhaps, but you've got to remember this is um, this was Schlenk's hiring. You know, this was his guy that he brought in to coach this team that Schlenk has essentially uh, put the time over the four years to build. So at the end of the day, look, we've talked about maybe the, the roster uh, as it's constructed may not be the best result long-term for the team. And that's more so, I think, on Schlenk rather than uh, Lloyd Pierce. And, 100%. Um, I think the biggest factor here and the one that, you know, we don't generally get the, the most commentary around is when your star player, and, and in this case it's Trey Young, there, there seems to be a disconnect between Trey Young and the coach. And when, once that happens, well, it generally doesn't end well for the coach. And Blanner really has put every every ounce of effort over since they drafted Trey Young to making him the focal point and centrepiece of the franchise. And it looks like as a result of that, where Trey Young had some discontent um, with the coach, well, that, that sort of stamped his papers, which whether you think that's um, fair or not, unfortunately, that's the, the way the league kind of runs and, and the way, you know, a lot of sporting teams run from, as both of us know, from local community football all the way up to, to AFL football. I think once you lose um, your, either a group of players or, in this case, your star player, where well, you're generally in a hiding for nothing. So, I think um, that's really disappointing. That, that, that were the reports that Trey Young and, uh, and Lloyd Pierce had fallen out. But, look, Trey Young's played... You know, into his third season. Yes, he was an all-star last year, didn't make it this year. But to, to be given that much power to a guy in his third season who hasn't really proven anything, it's not as if he's led Atlanta Hawks to a to a good record over his first couple of seasons. Now, I understand he's, he's, he's a really good player and he's going to be a good player in the competition for a long time. But it sounds like Lloyd Pierce was being pretty harsh on Trey Young which is fair enough, but if if anyone who watches the Atlanta Hawks, it's not as if Trey Trey Young's not getting his way. He's taking a lot of shots, taking shots from you know from long ranges out, which is fine. But I think he needs to look at himself. If you look at Trey Young's record in their wins, he's averaging thirty three points, shooting fifty one percent from the field, forty eight percent on threes, and only fifty four turnovers in fourteen games. But in losses, it, it drops down to twenty one points. 30, 36% shooting, 25% on threes, and 85 turnovers in 18 games. So I, I think it's got to fall back on Trey Young, and I think he's trying to deflect a bit of the a bit of the criticism that may be being directed at him and, and pointing the finger at Lloyd Pierce and saying it, it's his fault, not mine. Yeah, and look, you know, as we said, the this, this season did start out promising, and it all kind of went pear-shaped once that injury to DeAndre Hunter um, had happened. Um, he was the guy that really had made the big improvement from last season to this one, and once he went out of the team, and particularly his defensive prowess, 
um, was taken away, then you know the team has really suffered. Along with that, with them, you know, you've got the uncertainty around John Collins and his future with the franchise. They obviously didn't agree to an extension prior to the season, so he's going to be a restricted free agent at the end of this one. And so it's really going to be quite interesting how that plays out, whether or not you know we, you'd expect a, a big contract offer will come for Collins from another team. And Atlanta still have the ability to match that, but if they do do that, that's going to be tying a hell of a lot of money up once obviously they're going to have to extend uh, Trey Young next year as well. So for me, the Collins piece is a really, really um, big one in terms of the franchise moving forward. And unfortunately for Lloyd Pierce, it's not going to be something he's going to be involved with. And, you know, a lot of the feedback after the the firing was, you know, a lot of disappointment for Lloyd Lloyd Pierce. He'd done a lot of great work in the community, particularly in Atlanta, and and, and really pushed for uh, some of the change that we'd seen prior to the election and voting and things like that. So he'd been quite a a big, strong voice, um, particularly in the Atlanta, Georgia community. And um, there was quite a lot of disappointment from that point of view. But the fact, I think, uh, for Trevor Schlenk and his front office, that they had Nate McMillan kind of sitting there ready to go as well, a guy that's had success pretty much wherever he goes, um, particularly initially when he gets hold of a team. So as you mentioned, the pressure might have been on in terms of this season and, and being a you know, really a lot of pressure on making the playoffs and um, that temptation for Trevor Schlenk to have Nate McMillan oversee that towards the end of the season was probably too much in the end. Yeah, it was always thought when McMillan joined the coaching staff this year that he was the coach in waiting. And recently when Lloyd Pierce left the team for the birth of his child, McMillan did coach him for three games and they went two and one. So they probably got a little bit of a taste of McMillan and thought, we'll, we'll go down this path. You did mention DeAndre Hunter there. And yeah, they were 10 and eight when he got injured. And one stat that sort of highlights that Lloyd Pierce has certainly been a little bit unlucky given the injuries. When Young, Capella, Collins, and Hunter are on the court together, they're actually a plus twelve point nine. So, I think when Pierce actually had his his better players available, they were certainly good enough to be playing. You know, to be right in the in the playoff hunt there because we, as you mentioned, we did speak about them a few weeks ago and we thought they were almost a, a playoff lock as that they were playing really good basketball. But then once Hunter went out of the lineup, they have sort of fallen right back. So. The pressure now does have to go to Travis Schlenk, given that those guys I mentioned earlier in Gallinari, Rondo and Bogdanovich, who they shout out all the money to to get him in this year, haven't quite performed up to what they would have hoped. So, you know, you did say Schlenk uh, did appoint Lloyd Pierce, so he's made one mistake there that he's admitted. You know, these other three guys are looking like a bit of a mistake at the moment. So for his sake, he, he hopes that Nate McMillan can turn this around and, and get Atlanta Hawks certainly into the playoff this year. Otherwise, the, the pressure is going to be right on him um, come the end of this season. Now, one team that is, isn't under a lot of pressure at the moment because they're on a really good winning streak is the Phoenix Suns. So they've got themselves up to 24-11, and 11, which is second in the West and actually the second best record uh, in the NBA also. So they're eighth in offensive rating, third in defensive rating. And they got a plus 6.6 net rating, which is second in the NBA. And over the last 19 games, they're 16-3 and three with quality wins against Milwaukee, Philly, the Lakers, Portland, Golden State twice, and Dallas twice. So it's not as if they're beating up on, on some of the lower teams in the East there. What have you seen out of the Phoenix Suns? Because it was thought with Chris Paul coming into the, into the team this year and the way they did finish the bubble last year that they were going to be a team on the rise. Has it surprised you how much they have risen up? Or did you think that... Given, given they did add Chris Paul, that this could have been on the cards? Look, I don't think any of us would have thought once we got to the All-Star break that we're talking about them with the second-best record in the NBA, not only in the in the Western Conference, but across the league in total. So just that run they had prior to the break where they won eight of their last ten, really elevated over um, you know the Lakers and Clippers in particular in the in the West who sort of stumbled to, to the line in terms of the All-Star break. So, now look, I didn't see them um, rising 
um, this quickly. I thought, you know, certainly they'd be right in the playoff mix and, you know, towards the bottom part of that uh, top eight in the West. But, again, you, you, anyone that's ever wanted to underrate um, the value Chris Paul, Chris Paul brings to a team, you know, you, you're in trouble because he obviously just keeps keeps on doing it, keeps on um, bringing results to that franchise. And, you know, look, I, I still look at Devin Booker in particular and we know he's been an elite scorer for a number of years, but he, he's still scoring you know, the basketball really, really well at a high level. And as we said, it has now starting to convert to winning. He was just um, announced as the uh, Western Conference Player of the Month in the last month before the break. So that's a, that's a huge notch on his belt as well. Um, so I think that's a real credit to Devin Booker. He's really been able to adapt with another star player in Paul coming in. And he's really been able to use it to his advantage. And, you know, it has taken so much of the ball handling and pressure late in games in particular off Booker that they've got Paul been able to handle handle the ball and um, you know a lot of credit really is going to go to their general manager James Johnson uh, sorry James Jones who um, is only pretty new to the role he came in um, in the summer of 2017 so he's been able to you know really build the roster out I mean they had already drafted DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges but he's been able to really add some veteran help Um, you know he was quickly he was quick to sign Ricky Rubio a couple of years back and again just to bring in some veteran presence um, in the ball handling side of things. You know, he made the trade to, to trade down to take Cameron Johnson, which was looked look poorly on at the time. But I think Johnson's proved himself to be a really good rotation player. You know, they've been able to sign veterans this year, Jay, Jay Crowder and each one more, and getting some really good bench play out of guys like Frank Kaminsky and campaign. So whether it's, you know, sustainable from a longer-term play as we get into the playoffs, whether this team's going to be good enough to compete over a couple of you know really tough Western Conference playoff series. I probably still have my doubts, but for the time being, um, I think it's yeah, absolutely worthwhile celebrating the fact that you know they've got the second best record in the NBA at 24 and 11, um, and that's a really an incredible performance. It certainly is. They're also 12 and 5 against over 500 teams, so, so to, you, you need to be able to beat the best teams if you're going to perform in the playoffs, and, and we know Chris Paul can perform in the playoffs, so that, that all goes well from them when they do get to the playoffs. Now, you mentioned Mikael Bridges. For me, he's the one that that uh, every NBA team is after, that, that sort of six-foot-six wing who, who can guard and, and shoot the three. He's got a seven-foot seven wingspan. He's, he's got the Inspector Gadget arm. So he's he's up to nearly 14 points a game and 5.1 rebounds, 2.2 assists, shooting 52% from the field and 42% from three and 84% from the free-throw line. So he's really jumped up for him this year and it made a big difference, especially on the defensive end for them. And the interesting one there also is DeAndre Ayton, the, the number one draft pick from a couple of seasons ago. So we thought bringing Chris Paul in to the mix, his offense would really explode, but it, pro- it, had, well, it hasn't been the case because he's down to down from eighteen point two points a game last year, down to fourteen point five this year. So, but interestingly, him and Chris Paul run the most pick and rolls in the competition. So he's playing his role. He's coming up, setting the pick and rolling hard to the, to the rim, which is drawing in the defense and opening up a lot of shots for for the opposition. So. I've got to say, I've got to tip my hat to DeAndre Ayton because a lot of guys are, are the number one pick. They come in, they, they've got the bigger reputation. They think everything's got to be about me. I'm a good offensive player. I've shown last year I want to take another step forward. Well, he's quite content not to do that. To His shots are down to only uh, 10 and a half a game, uh, down from 15 last year. So he's sacrificing shots. He's playing his role for the team. He's got a lot better on the defensive end. He's got that soccer background. I think he only started playing uh, basketball when he was 12 years old. So similar to Hakeem Olajuwon, he's got that soccer background. Now, he's no, he's nowhere near as good a defensive as Olajuwon was, but he can certainly move much better out on the perimeter than, than a lot of the big guys can. And he's and he's uh, got a lot better at 
protecting the rim vertically now instead of fouling. So I've been really impressed with Aiton, uh, given that he is sacrificing a lot of shots and opening up uh, for some of his teammates there. And the other guy who, uh, over the last couple of weeks, has really come into his own is Dario Saric, who they, who they got uh, in a trade from Philly. I'm not sure the, the machinations on that. I'm not sure if it was involved with the Mikael Bridges uh, draft night trade or not. But he's been really good playing a small ball five for them. He came into the league as a small forward, and now he's basically playing as a backup center. So he's got a lot of moves in the post. He's got a bit of a big ass there, Caddy, and he uses that to his advantage, and he's got a lot of tricks. And... Over the last couple of weeks, he's averaging 14.3 points and 4.2 rebounds, shooting 55% from the field. So anytime you can get someone coming off the bench and can be a bit of an offensive threat for you, especially down in the post, because you don't get that a lot. But I think he brings a, a bit of a different look for them uh, in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's good to see him really starting to repay some of the, or starting to see some of the potential that he had when he was part of that big rebuild in Philadelphia. He obviously got traded. Uh, to Minnesota in between as part of um, part of the Jimmy Butler deal uh, yes, there, and yes, you know he kind of slip, he kind of slipwalk through a couple of seasons in Minnesota, and it's been good to really see him come into his own a little bit here in Phoenix, and and really be an integral part of um, a, of a really good team. The most impressive thing, or the most impressive number for me in terms of Phoenix, is the defense. You know, we're not when we've thought of Phoenix historically over a number of years, it's it's never been about their defense. It's always been in a high octane. Offense that sort of gets you to tune in to, to watch them, but they're now third in defense and defensive rating um, so far through this season, which I don't think anyone would have seen coming at the start. And again, it's probably credit to the leadership of Chris Paul in particular that he's been able to really instill some of some of that into his teammates. And you know, again, whether they can sustain all the way through to the playoffs, um, we'll, we'll we'll need to wait and see. But um, yeah, you can't be any more impressed with Phoenix up until this point of the season. Certainly not. Now, the other big news that, that filtered through today was was Blake Griffin was bought out during the week by the Detroit Pistons. He left $13.3 million on the table, so quite a quite a reasonable number to leave on the table. I'm not, I haven't heard what uh, Brooklyn are going to pay him, and, the, and he has signed with the Brooklyn Nets. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks back when we did speak about Blake Griffin and, and the fact he was looking to, to get a buyout from Detroit that Brooklyn would be a good fit for him. What do you think now that that deal has gone through? What do you think you can bring to the table for the Nets, Caddy? Well, I can only imagine it's going to be basically coming off the benches, in particular, mate, perhaps as a small ball uh, five. Look, I, I can't see him playing alongside DeAndre Jordan in any in any you know meaningful minutes for them. So it's whether or not he can you know give them that extra option as a small ball five. We spoke about you know some of his numbers when he was playing at Detroit, and he basically just turned himself into a a three-point shooter, albeit a poor one. So whether or not they can get him sort of working more in the post and, and being able to spread out and, and, you know, get behind the arc and shoot a three, particularly if there's uh, not so much attention on him with all so many good teammates. But I think that's probably the role he's going to take. Um, it was announced that he will only go in as a veteran minimum for Brooklyn, which allows them to still hold their disabled uh, $5.6 million. I think it is up their sleeve that they can use as part of the Spencer uh, Dinwiddie allowance that they were given. So they've still got that up their sleeve and a mid-level. So they can still add two more roster spots um, as they go through here. And, 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 you know, with those numbers in the five million, they can probably get something pretty decent. So that was a pretty good result for Brooklyn to not have to use one of those slots. To sign Blake Griffin, obviously you mentioned the, the $13 million that he's left on the table. I mean, I think um, looking at it earlier, he's earned over $255 million throughout his career. and, and it's a drop really, of the ocean um, for him then, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, he's pretty, considering he's pretty much slept walk his way through the last two, two or three years in Detroit on max money, probably he's probably uh, okay to leave, uh, leave some of that back. So it's still a big number to swallow 
uh, for Detroit to, to move him on. But again, you know, they're in the, well, at the start of another rebuild really for them. And it didn't make a lot of sense him staying on the, on the team clearly as the, as the season went on. But um, I look on paper when you, when you think of Kyrie Irving and James Harden, Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin, and then, you know, DeAndre Jordan as well. If you'd said, you know, Jeez, three every, or four years ago. That, all those players in their prime <laughs> would have been unbeat, unbeatable, wouldn't they? Well, it'd be, it's like um, you know, like a Space Jam sort of lineup. These aliens almost coming together and, and playing playing in the same team. But you know, obviously, Griffin's not on the same level that he was um, four, five, or six years ago, just from an athletic point of view, and the shooting drop off. But you know, again, he's going to get a lot of lot uh, more open looks here in Brooklyn, and if they can sort of find a serviceable role for him, and, and he might get re-energized just by the prospect in terms of playing, you know, high-level playoff basketball here uh, towards the end of the season. Look, who knows? He might come out and, and prove everyone wrong that he's still got um, plenty left in the tank. But um, yeah, look, Brooklyn, we're always going to be the team that's going to be at the front of people's minds in this buyout market. And as I mentioned, there's still two slots available for them to fill um, as we go down further into the season. Yeah, they certainly will loom large on that buyout market. And given that they signed the first guy available, I could see a number of guys looking to go there. I think for Griffin, he's probably going to be the guy certainly coming off the bench as that small ball five, as you mentioned. 15 to 18 minutes a game, uh, just just give him a bit of a blow. I, I, I don't I don't think he'll be in the closing five. I mean, we'll just see how, how it does sort of unfold once he gets there, but it, it will be interesting to see how, how it does all come together for Griffin. Maybe with a few weeks off, maybe he can get his knee right and his body's, you know, recouped a little bit. Who knows? And maybe he does look a lot better, as you said, when he gets into a, a scenario where he can see maybe a championship at the end of it because, you know, th- those days when Griffin and CP3 and, and DeAndre played together at uh, Clippers, th- they were always thought that they were a, a title chance. He never got that opportunity, so he probably looks at this now as his chance to win that title that has eluded him uh, right throughout his career. Now, the trade deadline is March 25th, so, so the rumour mill has started to heat up a little bit. So we'll just talk about a few guys who, who the rumours are starting to fly around about. The first one we'll, we'll talk about is PJ Tucker of the Houston Rockets. Now, the Houston Rockets are on a very lengthy losing streak at the moment, so, so there's no reason for them to hold on to any of their experienced guys who, who are on expiring deals. And he, he, he's one of those. He's on an $8 million expiring deal. He has struggled, a li- not a little bit, a lot this year, PJ Tucker. He's only averaging the 4.4 points and 4.6 rebounds, shooting 36% from the field and 31% from three. So it's not as if he's setting the world on fire, but he's never going to be a guy who scores a lot of points or or does a lot of flashy stuff. He has made a name for himself, particularly over the last few years at Houston, playing that small ball five role because he is a really thick and he'll get in there and, and defend and, and rebound to the best of his ability. Now, now the, the, the teams that have popped up that have interest in, in P.J. Tucker are the Brooklyn Nets, uh, the LA Lakers, Milwaukee Bucks, Miami Heat, and Denver Nuggets. Out of those uh, five teams there, Caddy, which one, which team do you see him suiting best? Well, I think it's the Nets, absolutely, in terms of what they're building out. Even you know, though they just got Griffin? It's probably the easy answer, but uh, just from a defensive point of view, I think we spoke about it early on um, when they signed all the, the three stars up and you know, made the Harden trade that you know de- defense was the clear problem for them. I think he fits that bill in terms of being able to play you know, purely as a defensive player that can just stand in the corner and maybe have one or two shots a game. He's obviously got a history playing alongside James Harden and that, that relationship seems to still be okay. And, and that, from a playing point of view, that, that has worked pretty well in the past. So I think for the Nets, he's the guy and whether Tucker thinks that as well. Again, it'll be interesting to see whether it's through through a trade. You, you mentioned his, his expiring contract, so that could have some 
attraction to a team. But again, you wouldn't be giving up a lot for him. And I couldn't imagine Houston would be expecting a lot to come back. So if it is one of those teams that you mentioned, they're only going to be, a, if any of them have got picks to give, they're going to be really late in the 20s. So um, the attraction in terms of a trade for Houston, um, I can't imagine it's going to be strong to any of those players. So, uh, sorry, to any of those teams. So it's whether or not the trade doesn't eventuate and then there's just a buyout is probably how I'd, how I'd see it probably ending up. And then um, Tucker signing as a free agent to whichever team he kind of decides on. So I think the Nets probably are the best fit. I'd like to see him as well at Milwaukee. I think he could really be the guy that... Yeah, they're um, the ones for me too. Yeah, sure. After defence, we spoke about the fact that that has slipped for them uh, this season compared to last. And the guys that they did sign in the off-season haven't really been able to add anything from a defensive point of view. So if he can soak up some of the minutes, say that Bobby Portis is playing at the moment, I think that's that would be a pretty good and attractive fit for, for PJ Tucker. Yeah, I agree. Milwaukee's the one for me. As you said there, Bobby Portis hasn't quite panned out. Look, he's good offensively, but you don't have much confidence in him defensively. And in a playoff setting, you know, PJ Tucker's been in a lot of those. You know he can perform. He'll put his body on the line. He'll hustle. He'll do everything. He'll do all those little things that don't quite appear on the stat sheet. So I think given that Milwaukee are a little bit shallow and probably, not probably, they certainly do need to add before the trade deadline if they can. PJ Tucker would be a really good fit, I think, for the Milwaukee Bucks. There's some news on a couple of the guys out of the, out of San Antonio who are obviously going really well at the moment. Now, DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge, apparently the Spurs are listening on both of those guys. Now, DeRozan, you mentioned last week, was certainly a borderline also. He's having a fantastic season, and Aldridge has struggled a little bit this year. He's only averaging the 13.7 points, 4.5 rebounds. He's actually come off the bench for the last three games, which is the first time since his rookie season that he has come off the bench. Um, and he's in the last year of his contract, which is worth $24 million. So he could potentially have some suitors. Out, out of those two there, which one do you think the Spurs would be more likely to trade? And, and do you think they could get anything decent for either one of them? Uh, look, I think out of the two would be LaMarcus Aldridge would be the one they're probably more willing to trade. I think they would least like to explore the possibility of re-signing DeMar DeRozan into next year, depending on what that free agent number is going to look like. But I think the relationship between the Spurs and Aldridge is probably coming close to the end, and um, and that's probably fair enough. So I think in that case, if they were likely to deal one of those guys, um, I think it would, it would be LaMarcus Aldridge. Now, what you're going to get for him is going to be quite interesting. He's obviously still $24 million, um, towards the end of this year. So it's going to be very hard for one of those contending teams to swallow that type of salary. So it's probably looking at one of the lesser-like teams that are able to absorb um, that cap hit. And at least for the Spurs, they might be able to get something more significant back in terms of a trade if it is a, you know, other players that can can match those salaries and at least get a first-round pick back to absorb someone's contract. But I think DeRozan, at least this year, has really shown that he's still he's still engaged and he's playing at a really high level. I personally think he probably should have been the replacement in rather than Conley towards this all-star berth. I think the Spurs in the end probably should have had that reward. Um, he's, he's having a great season. So I think they'd at least like to explore what, um, a future with DeRozan may cost them or may look like more so than LaMarcus Aldridge. Yeah, DeRozan's on close to a $28 million expiring contract, so that would obviously be reasonably difficult to move, you'd imagine. Now, Aldridge is, is the interesting one. I, I agree. I, you'd reckon the Spurs would at least want to have a conversation with DeRozan at the end of the year, and they'll probably do that now and say, look, are you, what are you looking at in the off-season? And, and they'll probably work something out. So Aldridge is the one. I think Boston could could try and get uh, Aldridge there. They, they would certainly like an upgrade at centre. Now, whether he's an upgrade or not on Daniel Tyson, Tristan Thompson, given that it seems that Aldridge has fallen 
right off there. Certainly, name he is, and you look at it and go, well, of course he is. But the actual output maybe would suggest otherwise. But Boston could maybe look at using that uh, that trade exception they got in the Gordon Haywood deal there to bring him in. They would have to send out some money so that uh, six million dollars worth to fit under that hard cap. So they'd have to do a bit of uh, juggling around of some figures there and send a couple of players to the Spurs. And you'd imagine that San Antonio wouldn't expect too much in as far as. Uh, draft capital there. So I think maybe this, the Celtics could look at Aldridge, but I think realistically, I think both of these guys probably end up playing the season out with the Spurs. And, you know, DeRozan probably looks to re-sign with San Antonio, or certainly San Antonio looked to re-sign DeRozan and, and Aldridge becomes a free agent. And you'd imagine the Spurs would probably be happy to let him go. And uh, Aldridge, being late in his career, maybe he signs for a, for a veteran minimum or, or a mid-level somewhere where he thinks he might be able to win a championship because he hasn't been able to do that so far in his career. Now, the other big name that, that there has been a few rumours uh, circulating around at the moment is Nikola Vucevic, the all-star from Orlando, who's having a career year at the moment. Now, he's owed $26 million this year, and then he's got a declining deal over the following two seasons worth $24 million and then $22 million in that last year of the contract. So he's on a really team-friendly contract there, given he's an all-star and still producing a really good rate. And a couple of teams that have obviously... Uh, been rumoured to be really keen on him are uh, the Boston Celtics, who, as I mentioned, are looking to upgrade at that centre position. And the interesting one for me are the Charlotte Hornets, who are also uh, had their name thrown up that would be interested in Vucevic. Out of those two, which one would you prefer to see Vucevic if he did become available? Which I won't think he, I don't think he would, but if he did become available, which one out of those two do you think would be more uh, you'd like to see Vucevic on? Oh, look, I think it's Boston for me. I, I, you know, if they can add him, you know, still with with time left on the contract to sort of pair with Brown and Tatum and Kemba Walker and, and you sort of lock that in for the next three years um, as your team, then you're going to give yourself every opportunity to obviously be competing at a high level. His, his scoring numbers are still being right up there and, and rewarded again with an all-star berth. So I think Boston would be certainly have some interest. I, I just don't see where the trade's going to come from and, and what Orlando's motivation. As you said, it is a pretty good uh, contract that he's on. It's not cap crippling and it's something that they could certainly uh, move if, if things don't work out. I mean, this year has been an absolute disaster for Orlando and things haven't gone right just straight from the from the get-go. So whether or not they can, they, they've got enough belief in their roster that they can kind of give it another shake with what they've got into next season, then they'd probably be more inclined to, to let it play out. But if they were looking to trade, you know, there'd be certainly suitors just based on that declining contract that you mentioned and he's still playing at such a high level. What, what a trade would look like and what the I think it'd have to include some pretty high-level draft capital in addition to another player. Um, what teams have got that available would be the more interesting part of the conversation, I'm sure. Yeah, it would be. I, yeah, as I said, I don't think Orlando would look to, to move Vujovic, but it, it's interesting that his name has popped up a couple of times over the over the last couple of weeks. So usually where there's smoke, there's fire. I, th- I think Charlotte would be a really interesting one for me. They'd probably have to, to, to cobble together enough salary to, to trade for him. They'd probably have to look at moving Zala, Biombo, and Malik Monk. Now, Malik Monk's coming to his own over the last sort of few weeks and, and has been a really good spark plug off the bench for him. And they'd obviously have to throw in some some future first as well. And maybe, you know, given Charlotte's history, Orlando look at that and think, okay, we can get some some reasonable draft picks here, given Charlotte have sort of struggled, you know, historically, although they are looking much better this year. But if, if they could get their hands on Vucevic, and they'd, they'd end up having a starting five of Lamelo Ball, Terry Rozier, PJ Washington, Gordon Haywood and Nikola Vucevic, that, that looks pretty good to me. And coming off the bench, it's still have Devontae Graham, Miles Bridges and, and the Martin brothers there. So I think 
for me. That would look really interesting. As I said, Charlotte have struggled for so long. They hit the jackpot this year, getting LaMelo Ball, who looks like he probably should have gone with a number one pick. He's really re-energised the franchise and gone him back to those glory days of you know Larry Johnson when he was going around for the Hornets and they were one of the most popular teams in the NBA. So if you've got Vucevic in there, into that starting five, I think that would look really good. Would that be an interesting starting five for you? Yeah, for sure. I think that yeah, absolutely. Lamelo Ball's the big part of all that, and the fact that you know his play's been, I'm sure, even surprised the the Hornets about how what a high level he's playing at. So, um, look, the issue for Charlotte always is that you know being a probably not being a free agent destination. Although we did see them obviously get their hands on Gordon Hayward in last off season, but historically they have struggled to sign you know really top end free agent players. So if they were able to um, execute a trade to bring a goal at Vucevic in, then you know, that's their that's sort of their mantra in terms of being able to improve their team would be through the draft and, and through trade. They're just not going to land any top-level talent really in the free agent market. They do have sort of almost max cap space going into next summer, depending on what they decide to do with Devontae Graham. So, you know, there are ways forward for um, Charlotte to continue to improve this roster. Yeah, and you would think given, as you said there, they're not a free agent destination. They have that max cap space. Usually they're not going to be able to get anyone worth a max contract because nobody wants to go there so they almost have to trade to bring in that max player so Vucevic could be a really nice one but as I said I I don't think Orlando would trade but if they did uh, Charlotte would be a really interesting destination for me. Andre Drummond's the other one that we did talk about a couple of weeks ago that obviously the, the he's looking to get traded uh, from Cleveland and the name that's popped up there is Chicago. Now you're a Bulls supporter so I'll let you t- take the floor here but for me when I looked at the Bulls roster there was one one obvious one that stood out for me is straight swap for Otto Porter. They're basically earning the same money, and you throw in a you know a second round pick or something like that. And given that uh, Cleveland acquired Drummond for 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 only a second round pick, you wouldn't think they're going to be asking for the world. Do you think that'd be a good trade for him, or, or would there be another way that they could get their hands on Andre Drummond? Or do you think even oh, that it's a good idea? Well, it'd be it'd almost be a concession from the Bulls to to say that the Wendell Carter selection at pick seven a couple of year, years ago hasn't worked out because essentially Drummond would have to soak up pretty much most of Wendell Carter's minutes, who's basically the the Bulls' starting centre at the moment. So that would be a disappointing outcome from that point of view. Is I it mean, too early you know, to call that on Wendell Carter, given how many injuries he's had, and he has shown certainly some flashes that it, that he might be a really good player in the future for Chicago? So do you think that would be pulling the plug a bit early on Wendell Carter Jr. there? Oh, I think it would be, and you know, this year just hasn't gone right again for the Bulls. And I know we say that pretty much year in year out um, recently, but you know, they just haven't had Laurie Markin on the floor for any consistent time. Wendell Carter is always in and out of the lineup. We've obviously seen a huge improvement from Zach Levine, and, and they're getting great play out of Thaddeus Young. Otto Porter's basically been a zero since he came to Chicago from Washington. He just hasn't been able to get out, out onto the floor consistently. And as you mentioned, his salary number at twenty eight million this year that does expire would be able to uh, facilitate a drum and trade. I just wonder, from the Bulls' point of view, a- again, w- what value is bringing Drummond into this year's side? Um, do they see themselves as a playoff contender? Do they then want to are looking to re-sign him going into into future years? And then what does it mean for Wendell Carter and potentially Laurie Martin? What number so, would you be comfortable giving Andre Drummond going forward, given that there was basically no market for him last year when, when Detroit looked to trade him? What number would you be comfortable, as a Bulls supporter, if they did acquire him, uh, Chicago giving Drummond. Well, anything over ten would be I wouldn't be comfortable with. I don't think because yeah. um, you've got some decisions to make already um, on Laurie Markin and who they didn't agree on terms in the off season, similar to um, 
John Collins and Atlanta. So there's going to got to be a decision made there in the off season once offer sheets come in for Laurie Market and whether or not they're prepared to sort of see what those numbers sit at and then decide to match. And then they're going to have the same decision on Wendell Carter the following year when he um, sort of gets that opportunity to extend his rookie contract. So the Bulls are in a really interesting position, you know, around those two young players. Um, I think they've, they've, they've been probably pretty happy with what they've seen out of the fourth selection in the draft last year, Patrick Williams. I think he's he's been able to show that he's got certainly a lot of upside still being such a young player. Um, I mean, Zach Levine's only got one year left on his deal as well. So he's going to be looking you know, for some significant money as well. So anything that's got Andre Drummond's name attached to it with any significant contract, for me, I don't think it's a, a great result for Chicago. I don't see where that fit is from a longer-term standpoint, albeit, you know, if they think they can he can add something to them making a playoff push and giving some security to the roster this year, and if it means the Porter's the casualty, well, fine, that's not a problem. But I think anything longer-term is a real sort of acknowledgement that they've, they've basically buggered up their draft selections in the last three or four years, and they're, you know, they're looking to sort of move in a totally different direction, which would be, I think, a, a surprising decision. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I can't, I can't see why you would you would give up on on Carter Junior just quite yet and bring in Drummond. And I think for me next year, any team that gives Drummond anything over the mid level exception is probably overpaying. And I'm sure Drummond will be disappointed with that. But that's just the reality of where his game sits at the moment and and where the big guys are. If he can't sort of, you know, shoot from the outside and defend, which he he can't do either of them. He puts up numbers obviously with his rebounding and he's he's, he's elite rebounder. There's no question about that. But I don't think he sort of contributes a lot to winning. So I can't imagine he's going to be getting a significant contract um, in the off season. So we'll call the show there. As I say every week, thank you very much to everybody who continues to download this. And I say again every week, if you haven't gone onto Apple Podcasts and given us a five-star review, um, can you please do that? It does help us grow the, the show, and that's what we would like to do, grow the show as much as possible. But uh, we will talk to you all next week. Thank you very much.